This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. How worried should we be about this latest strain of Omicron that's begun to really spread in the United States? It's the one that they've nicknamed the Kraken. And right now it accounts for about 40% of U.S. COVID cases. And that has doubled in about a week. So we're hearing a lot about this. We heard Dr. Bonnie Henry on the news yesterday talking about it as well. So we thought, let's dig into what's going on with this one. So joining us now is Dr. Isaac Bagosh, an infectious disease specialist at Toronto General Hospital. Thanks for being with us this morning. Oh, my pleasure, Cindy. So do you think we should worry about this? Uh, I mean, obviously, we've got to watch it. And obviously, we have to acknowledge that it's spreading, that it's here. Uh, but, you know, and at the end of the day, too, it's it's a bit more of the same, right? We've had this multiple times before. We had, you know, an alpha wave. We had a wave of the Delta variant. We've had a initial Omicron wave. We've had two subsequent Omicron waves. And, and this is yet another sub-lineage of Omicron. So, you know, obviously something to be aware of, something to be mindful of, but uh, nothing that we haven't dealt with before. Has anything changed in terms of symptoms and how this illness affects people with these different variants? Uh, you know, it's important to keep an open mind uh, because we have seen some variants uh, more, what we would say is virulent, meaning causing more significant illness than others. For example, the uh, spring of 2021 alpha variant, that, that packed a, a punch. But we know that any strain of COVID-19, regardless, can, can still cause harm. And, you know, there might be relative potency, for lack of a better word, between strains, but any of them can can cause harm. And, you know, I think it's still too soon to know exactly the degree of illness or the extent of illness that this particular sublineage of Omicron can cause versus others. Having said that, I mean, let's just bring it back down to planet Earth. We have vaccines, we have boosters available, we can reduce our risk by putting on a mask in an indoor setting. I mean, there's, it's the same steps we can take to uh, you know, reduce the impact of this virus on at an individual level and, of course, at a, at a community level as well. Right. Okay. So what are you seeing in terms of the impact this is having, you know, in Ontario? Well, quite frankly, not not a ton, but it might be premature. And I'm always cautious about what walks in the front door or what comes in the front door of an individual hospital and then looking at, you know, province-wide and then country-wide and, then, of course, global data. Uh, because we know how you know this this can certainly take off in one region, uh, and it doesn't take off for uh, you know a while. You know, sometimes measured in days, weeks, even a couple of months in other parts of the world. Like we've seen this expand, for example, in the Northeast United States, and now this uh, particular sublineage of Omicron makes up over 50% of the cases, and it's about 20% of the cases in the United States. Of course, it's here in Canada, uh, but quite frankly, I'm still waiting to see some updated Canadian data. Uh, to see how much of this is in Canada and the extent to which it's expanded in Canada. Of course, it's here. It's just not clear how much. And uh, it would be very helpful to see some updated data on Canadian 
COVID rates and hospitalization rates. But listen, I mean, listen, to no one's surprise, we might see a rise in cases in the new year. We saw it exactly the same time last year and exact same time the year before, largely driven by, you know, some variants and a lot of indoor gatherings over the course of the uh, holiday season. So there is certainly a seasonal variability, and this might further drive a rise in cases. Right, but you make a good point there, though. Is there not enough data? I know this is something we've complained about in BC, that we don't get enough information about what's going on with COVID. Well, I, I think there will be. It's just a matter of, you know, updating uh, databases and, uh, and publicly uh the, uh, the the dashboards that we see. I think uh, you know, everyone deserves a break, but of course the virus doesn't take a break. So we'll see a lot of those updates this week, uh, especially the Canadian data updated this week in terms of hospitalizations and percentage of tests that are positive, and number of tests that were performed. Like We'll, we'll, we'll get a, an update probably in uh, the next couple of days, and I think that will shed some light as to how we're doing at a country level. Um, in Ontario, yeah, I mean, listen, I, I've worked uh, a fair bit over the last uh, couple of weeks. And yeah, I mean, COVID's still here. We still have people coming in with COVID-related illnesses into the hospital. And, you know, it's not exclusively, but it's primarily people who are more vulnerable. It's people who are on the older end of the spectrum, almost exclusively over the age of 60, uh, and, and occasionally people who might be younger than that, but who have underlying medical conditions that put them at greater risk for, for more severe infection. Is there something that you wish the public were doing here? Is there something, should we be doing more of something to protect ourselves? Well, it starts with sound communication from senior political and public health leadership. Just, you know, just calling it how it is, stating that, you know, COVID's still around and there's going to be times where there's more COVID out there and there's going to be times where there's less COVID out there. And, you know, in the absence of, of public health mandates, just letting people know how they can protect, protect themselves and those around them. So, really encouraging and lowering barriers to booster vaccines, especially for more vulnerable individuals. Uh, and, and by lowering barriers, I mean, you know, getting pop-up vaccine clinics into uh, neighborhoods that might be under-vaccinated and, and uh, communities that under are under-vaccinated, and really encouraging people to put masks on and lowering barriers to mask use in settings where we know that COVID is transmitted, crowded, indoor venues. You know, that could be simple as good quality messaging, uh, community outreach, putting masks at the front of, uh, you know, malls or community centers or athletic facilities as well. And again, right. these are things that can lower the burden, but not eliminate the burden of COVID. It really seems like after, you know, three years or so, are, are, would you say, are we learning to live with this thing now? Yeah, to some extent. On the other hand, like that means different things to different people, right? right? We're still seeing, uh, I would say, an unacceptable number of, of deaths. Uh, you know, obviously, listen, this is not going to be a cakewalk. Everyone's going to come out of this and everyone on earth is going to come out of this with bumps and bruises along the way. But the, the point is to mitigate that as much as much as possible while balancing that with enabling people to you know, live live their life, but but creating safer indoor environments. So, yeah, I mean, we are learning to live with it, but that that, you know, I think there's some degree of debate as to what exactly that means and what's acceptable versus what isn't. Right. Well, Dr. Bergos, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Have a great day. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Raji Solhal. I tell you, she is singing my tune this morning. Raji, good morning. <laughs> good morning, Simi. You know, I don't know if you are following the whole royal family debacle. No, I'm no you're done. I'm, I'm so... <laughs> I knew it. Done with this story. Okay, I'm deep in it. Done. Are you? Yeah, Why? Because you have to be. I feel like I just need to know what everybody is still talking about. You know what half the conversation is? Half the conversation is, why are we still talking about this? But then we keep tuning in and they won't. I'll tell you the other thing about this is that Prince Harry will not let up. He is doing interviews all over the place in the UK. They weren't supposed to do any televised interviews. At least that's what the word was many months ago in the UK. And then they've gone for it. That's coming out in the next, uh, within this week, actually. And then they sat down, he sat down with Anderson Cooper. So he's just got a book to sell. That I understand. Yes. He's got a book to sell. He's got to make money. He's been cut he off from the family. And, you know, he's got to earn his way. And if this is the way he earns his way, I get all that. I get all that. I just think, you know what? Everybody has family problems. Why do we need to hear about their family problems so much? He is airing all the dirty laundry. And then really uncomfortably, it's not like the royal family can clap back. And defend oh, themselves but they against do. Come everything. On. Oh, they you have these formal oh, they letters. Leak. No, they leak things. Yeah. They, and like, <laughs> just I'm so done with these British tabloids because the agenda is so over the top with kind of protecting the crown and making they, they it's in their best interest to make you know somebody like Harry look bad or whatever. I'm just done with all the leaking and the secret stories and the sources say. It's just it's family drama. It's never going to end, Simi. It's so salacious. Everybody is like salivating for the next interview, the next book. This memoir is gonna, that Harry's written is going to be huge. And then meanwhile, after he's like, he's trashing his family basically. Oh, and then meanwhile, he says he wants a relationship with them. That's the lady. He wants a relationship with his dad and his brother. Are you kidding me? Did you watch the uh, Netflix <laughs> I documentary? Did. did you? I watched the first part because yeah. my cousin made me and we were staying together over the holidays. So she, she made me. And so I sat down and I was watching this first part with her and I, I had sympathy for them because clearly a lot of what they went through was just awful, right? Absolutely. Just awful. But then it got to the point <laughs> I was almost through that first episode and I thought, boy, they, they sure filmed a lot of themselves during this process, like talking to the camera. And I thought, have, how, then I started to feel like, how long have they been planning this? And then I thought, you know what? I am just being emotionally manipulated here. Like, this is too much. That's funny. Uh, that's how I felt that th- it was so orchestrated. And can you imagine how much B-roll they would have had? Yeah. And Extra footage that they yeah. would have had that just to create that documentary. They're the actors in it. They're the producers of it. So, uh, you know, this thing is... Ka-ching. It's just... Oh, ka-ching is right. <laughs> right. How many millions are they going to make from this whole thing? And we're just lapping it up. And the reason I think it's never going to go away is because the way that the British tabloids work is to keep that stuff void well, the to the top. So, and they well they have every mechanism in place to do so i know when i look back and the crown has made it easier to do this is to look back at the role that really the media plays in propping up this monarchy and allowing these storylines to flourish because that's what it is right it is a storyline to keep us engaged in talking about it they did it with you know princess margaret and her sister queen elizabeth right somebody had to be the bad guy good guy 
Margaret played the role of party girl, you know, bad guy in that one. They did it with Charles and Andrew. They did the exact same thing, right? Andrew was the party boy and Charles was the heir to the throne. They even did it with, you know, way back when with Queen Elizabeth's father and his older brother, who was the original king and stepped down for Wallace. So yeah. all you look back and you're like, they, they always do They've this. They always, they always take the siblings and put them again because they need a good storyline. Yeah. Right? Well, this storyline is no longer, uh, it's no longer like delicious, the part between the brothers, no, I find. Sad. It's, it's so sad. sad. And especially because, uh, you know, it's not equal. We're not going to see both brothers make documentaries and, and write memoirs. and. <laughs> no, but one brother has the power of the whole institution behind him. Yeah. And another and brother money has been too. left out. Yeah. And it's just trying to keep some of that power for himself. Yeah. It's, it must be hard when you've when you've grown up being, you know how they used to say the heir and the spare. Yeah. You've grown up being right there with your brother the whole time until he got married and had children, you know, Harry was the next in line. I would imagine like and Margaret had that same issue and, and you're saying that's hard? Uh, no, I'm saying that when the time comes when they're like, yeah, we're done with you because now we've got these gear out of the line. I, I'm sure that's not, but nobody is going to be it was good coming. with, well, it doesn't make it easy to deal with. Oh, but it should be. I mean, I don't know that I, no. any of them have too much to complain about. Roger, look at you sucked me in now. You sucked <laughs> me into talking about this. I know we haven't talked about it until now. Simi squeezed it in. Royal Family Saga. <laughs> I'm you not Are you going to read this book? Of course I am. I have to. I have to know what's going on and people are talking about it. So yeah, I'm going to read it. I feel like the excerpts are going to be enough for me. They probably like, will be. Yeah. But you're a speed reader. You could get through this thing oh, really quickly. I just don't want to. I know. I just don't want. The, I, it's one of those stories that you don't want to know about, but you're like, ah, I have to. Well, at least I'm telling you, you have to. I think in the <laughs> end, what it comes down to is that old adage of there's no such thing as bad publicity. That all of these stories and people reading about it, and even us talking about it, in the end, for the monarchy, they may say they hate all this, and it's, but still, they know people are talking about them, and that keeps them relevant. I don't know if that adage goes. I don't know if it goes anymore. It does for those people. And the monarchy is in, I think, in troubled waters right now. I think that its future, you know, even now with the king, as opposed to the queen, I think it's shaky. I'm still not used to that. Raji, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Simi. <laughs> Raji Sohal there talking about the story that it feels like everybody's reading about, everybody's talking about, and yet we don't want to admit that we are reading and talking about it. This is Mornings with Simi. Okay, campers, get ready. Hit that BC Parks website. Get ready to book your reservations for, you know, May 3rd, May 4th. Get ready to start camping. But actually, I guess if you're a serious camper, you're already on the website and you have been waiting for probably 10 minutes or so to start doing that. This morning, the four-month rolling booking window for front country and back country reservations is up and running to get that season open. And we know in the past, having to book a camping reservation has been you know, kind of touch and go. It's been difficult. Sometimes the website would crash, nothing would be available. No shortage of complaints on this front. So what has been fixed? What's this process like now? Well, joining us now is Amin Singh, who's BC's Parliamentary Secretary for the Environment. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Simi. And good morning and Happy New Year, first of all. Happy New Year to you as well. So what has changed with the website this year? What has the government done? Uh, it's actually been completely revamped. Um, so during the pandemic, we... we uh, this four-month window is what traditionally used to be there before the pandemic and during the pandemic and, and last year, last season. We moved to a two-month window. While we moved uh, last year, uh, last season, we moved to a completely new system. We 
got rid of the old system. Um, we hired a new contractor, same uh, contractor that uh, uh, runs the websites for Parks Canada and Ontario Parks. Uh, uh, they have the ability to scale up, uh, which you know gets rid of the problems of uh, uh, the website crashing. Um, we also, in the 2021 season, we we listened to British Columbians. We heard a lot through social media, through direct contact, spontaneous feedback. We also, in the fall of 2021, conducted a design-centered research process engaging with hundreds of campers and park operators from every region in British Columbia um, through surveys, interviews, and focus groups to better understand exactly what the problem was. And we listened, we heard, and what you have now with this new system is, is, is a much better user experience. You know, I've used both the old system and the new system last year, and I'll I'll, I'll say it, it really is a much better user experience. One, um, much smoother. Uh, uh, you don't have the lag times. You have a lot more information on the website, on, on the campsite itself, better images showing the diversity of, of the nature that we have in British Columbia and the diversity of the people that go out and use our, our uh, BC parks. Um, amenities, uh, uh, better description of the amenities, better maps. You know, uh, if you have ability issues, you can really plan. Um, so really a much better user experience, completely informed by, by what British Columbians had asked for. Right. From us. So will there be better availability? I think that's what people really want to know. Will they be able to book a campsite? So our campsites are incredibly popular and, and for, for good reason. We live in such an incredibly beautiful place. People from all over the world want to come and British Columbians want to go out there as well. And we saw this after the, after the, or during the pandemic and after the pen, uh, pandemic that people, you know, uh, like people sort of re, re, rediscovered um, communing with nature is a good thing. And so there's always going to be a really high demand, but we have over 10,700 campgrounds uh, that are run by BC Parks. In addition, you have recreational trails and sites and Parks Canada as well. So, you know, if you're if you're flexible enough, you may not get you may not get your first choice for your first date, but you're flexible enough and you plan plan ahead, which the four month window allows you to do. You should be able to uh, reserve a campsite. Aside from that, if you want to go camping. More than 50% of the 10,700 campgrounds that are available are first-come, first-served basis. Um, so, you know, there's, there's not, you know, there's, uh, you, will, you will be able to go camping. I think what one of the biggest problems is uh, people in metro areas, especially the lower mainland, um, tend to sort of book the places that are really close by, Porto Cove, Golden Ears, um, Alice Lake, right. places like that. You know, I, I tell people, venture out an hour or two more, right, that, discover what British Columbia has to offer, especially in the summer. It's it's like the diversity of the nature that we have here, the diversity of the flora and fauna is in absolutely incredible. Um, venture out and you'll be able to you'll be able to find a campsite. People really love provincial campgrounds. I know that I grew up going to provincial campgrounds too. They're so great. Is there a plan to provide more of them? Absolutely. We're adding eight more campgrounds this year. You know, since since we formed government in 2017, we've added 1,700 new campgrounds to the provincial park system. Um, eight more are being added this year. Um, and our plan over the next few years is, you know, we're always looking for, for, for uh, uh, appropriate BC parks and campgrounds. And, and our plan is to keep on expanding. We know that... Uh, uh, People want to get out into nature. As I said, completely understandable. Not only that, um, you know, the pandemic, with the mental health stress that the pandemic created, we also know that nature provides a relief um, to that mental stress. You know, we have this incredible uh, prescription program called Parks, uh, which 
is uh, where psychiatrists and psychologists will actually prescribe going out into nature. You know, it's a it's a program run by the BC Parks Foundation. It's an award-winning program. It's been around for a few years here, and for the same concept for for a decade and a half all over uh, the U.S. Um, so we know that not only is it not only is it good for recreation, but it's also good for your mental health as well. So we're, we're going to continue to, to add campgrounds. So you also increased the, the rolling window, right, for people to be able to make a reservation? We did. We increased it to four months. We actually went back to the old system. So if you, if you reserved in 2018, 2019, uh, you were able to reserve up to four months. Um, during the pandemic and then during last year, while we were rolling out the new system, we didn't really want to. We wanted to make sure that the system was able to be rolled out uh, uh, efficiently. So we kept that two-month window. But as I said, we we heard we heard in social media surveys, direct contact, and the four-month window seemed to be the more the more popular one. So we we moved back to that. Okay, then. So any changes coming this year? Or do you think you're going to just watch this year and see how this new system is taken up by people? There will be iterations all throughout. So you'll see changes coming, you know, you'll see new new images uh, on there, you'll see an update on the amenities. And you know, something that that's you'll something that I'm really excited and looking forward to is the watch list. So, you know, if you don't if you don't get a camping reservation right now, you can put for example, I can put Porto Cove on my watch list and if a reservation gets cancelled or a reservation comes up, it'll email me, it'll inform me or text me and I can go back and reserve that. So I think that's a new feature that I'm pretty excited about. You know, it, uh, people do make plans four months in advance and, and things change and they cancel them. And then if you've got that on your list, you'll, you'll get notification and you can go, go back on and reserve that. Well, I know how passionate people are about this. So I have to tell you, if it's not going to work, you are certainly going to hear from people about it. I'm sure I will. <laughs> okay, thank you so much for your time. Have a good morning. Take care. That's Amin Singh, who's BC's Parliamentary Secretary of the Environment, talking about the BC Parks Reservation Service. Up and running this morning for the season, the four-month rolling booking window starts today. That means that you can uh, make a reservation for arrivals up to May 3rd. And of course, you know, tomorrow will be May 4th and so on. Let me know if you've had any problems doing this or you know, tell me about the new system. I had lots of people talk to me and complain about the old system let me find out now from you about what the new system is like. Is it an improvement? Do you like it? Are there still some problems with it? Simi at cknw.com or call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. I've seen headlines in newspapers you know, down in the United States, like the New York Times, the Washington Post over in the UK, talking about Canada's foreign buyer ban, saying that for the next two years, Foreigners are not allowed to buy real estate in Canada. So what does that mean for real estate prices here in BC? The whole idea behind this to bring those prices down to a level where people feel like, yes, now I can get into the market. So what kind of message is this sending out there? Well, joining us now is Adil Danani, who's the founder and principal of Danani Group Real Estate Advisors. Adil, thanks for being back with us. Simi, good morning. Thanks for having me. So what do you think about this? Is this going to do anything? I do think there's some optics around this that may, I think, have people kind of um, wait and see. Kind of, uh, well, the, the effect just went into place this week, um, and you know, I think what's important to note is provincially we've already had a pretty hefty foreign buyer tax that prevented a lot of, you know, foreign nationals of pe- folks that don't have residency um, from from purchasing real estate. You know, twenty percent on an average price of. One and a half million is a pretty hefty barrier to entry. You have a three hundred thousand dollar tax um, in addition to the property transfer tax that was already in 
in you know in effect. So I already think we had a barrier to entry. I think this is federally more of an optics play, um, a headline grabber for the uh, Trudeau government to show that they're doing something to create affordability. Um, I think the bigger conversation in 2023 certainly is going to be um, inflation and it's going to be interest rates because that's what's really hitting Canadians and British Columbians, um, you know, pocketbook. Yeah. Are you seeing that? So is it the interest rate right now? Do you think that it's having the biggest impact on real estate? Absolutely. Like if you were a dollar, so if you looked at the interest rates, which kind of hit a low in the first quarter of last year, um, to where they are today, we've seen the you know the, the fastest rate height um, heightening cycle in three in uh, three decades, so in thirty years. Um, at the beginning of last year, um, if you were to let's just say if you were to simplify it, for every hundred thousand dollars you borrowed, it would cost you about four hundred dollars a month. So let's just say you were going to buy a condo for half a million dollars. Um, your borrowing cost on that would be 2000 Fast forward to today's interest rate environment, it's costing you 600 for every $100,000 borrowed. So borrowing costs have gone up essentially 50%. And I think what you know Canadians, British Columbians are looking at is, how are we going to come up? If you're on a variable rate mortgage, how are you going to come up with this extra money every month to satisfy you know, the, the higher interest rates? Uh, because most Canadians at this point now have been triggered um, where their mortgage is essentially largely interest, mostly interest versus, uh, um, you know, versus that, 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 that balance between interest and, and, and principal payment. Right. What are you seeing out there? What are, what are customers saying? What are shoppers for real estate saying to you? Well, if you look at this foreign, if you look at this foreign buyer ban, it's a, tw- it's a two-year ban, so tw- for 24 months, if you're a non-resident, if you're not a citizen, and you don't have a temporary work permit, you're not going to be able to, be, to buy real estate in Canada. You know, I think foreigners have long been blamed for the affordability issues we face as Canadians, but the reality is, you know, it's a, it's a fractional buying group. It's, a, it's probably less than 2%. Um, if I look at my own practice, let's say, you know, on average we sell about 150 to 200 homes a year, we have maybe one purchase every year that's ticked off as, you know, non-resident where they're paying that foreign buyer tax. So in our personal practice, I don't think it has an impact. Broadly speaking, I've been speaking to colleagues as well. And, uh, you know, it's a very small segment of the market. Again, psychologically, from a, from a, from a news flow standpoint, maybe, I, um, you know, there could be some concern around, could this have a compounding effect? We have higher interest rates. You know, consumer confidence has eroded um, because of affordability. And now we have this foreign buyer tax. I could see consumers saying, look, what's this going to mean for the market going forward? Right. So what is this going to mean for the market going forward? Yeah, great question. <laughs> I don't think it changes much, to be honest. The bigger question right now is, uh, is, is you know, as Canadians are you know, spending over 75, 80% of their income towards their mortgage debt, um, and and now with rates rising higher, it's probably inching towards ninety five percent. Some on, in some cases of income paying towards mortgage, and it's really going to be sustaining themselves and finding a way to you know um, make those payments into the year. It's going to be a challenging year. I think one thing that a lot of folks are watching is we have elevated variable rate mortgages, um, which were open rates. 
Uh, and then we also had an elevated fixed rate mortgages where you could fix it for, you know, one, two, three or five year terms. We're seeing some relief on the five year rates and the fixed rates. So that might, um, you know, um, allow like would be buyers that were on the fence to come to the table again. But I do think um, it's, it's the, the market kind of best case scenario this year is going to be flat. Um, and then we might see some, you know, some challenges in the first quarter as people start adjusting to their new payments and, and just you know, balancing life and, and everyday expenses. I think it's going to be a very interesting year ahead for real estate. Adil, thank you so much. Thank you, Simi. Have a great day. You too. That's Adil Danani, who's the founder and principal of Danani Group Real Estate Advisors, talking about the market for the year ahead. I know lots of headlines about this, you know, foreign buyers ban, but everybody we've talked to has said pretty much that they don't think it's really going to have that much of an impact. It feels like, yeah, this really is just for show. And we've already kind of pulled the levers on this over the last few years, particularly here in BC. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. Interest rates, that's what people are going to be watching. That will decide whether or not people can get into the market or not. This is Mornings with Simi. I love talking about, you know, unique programs and creative ways of learning things. This next story certainly fits the bill. It's about a new science teaching resource that's been developed by the First Nations University of Canada. What they're doing is they are bringing together Indigenous knowledge and modern science. We're going to learn all about this now. Joining us now is Dr. Arzu Sadarli, lead project researcher and professor of mathematics and physics at the First Nations University of Canada. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. Could you please explain to me how this program came together? What exactly does it do? Um, a long time ago, uh, 2008, uh, uh, I initiated a project that uh, annual project uh, mathematical contest for First Nations schools. And uh, since that, I, I, I visit uh, First Nations schools and uh, I'm aware of their problems. Uh, one of the problems is uh, that the uh, First Nations schools and in general, the schools in uh, rural communities, uh, they do not have enough science labs uh, uh, qualified science teachers. And uh, so considering all these problems, we decided to create some uh, educational resource uh, about science. And um, we uh, started the project, which was 2017. Uh, we created the lab lessons, laboratory lessons, uh, biology, chemistry, and physics. Uh, and uh, the good thing is that all these labs uh, have been performed by indigenous students of uh, uh, Carleton High School, uh, Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. Um, and uh, we had uh, teachers participated in this project, but the, the most important that we had uh, elders, knowledge keepers uh, who helped us uh, to create uh, uh, resources, science resources with indigenous uh, elements as well. So um, one of the purposes of this project is to uh, emphasize that uh, the modern science started from indigenous knowledge. So indigenous knowledge is a foundation and then generations and each generation added something to that foundation 
And today we have a modern uh, science. Mm. So the art project is kind of uh, uh, maybe not all in all detail, but mm-hmm. it shows that path that way from indigenous knowledge to modern science. That's so interesting. Why did you think it was necessary to develop something like this? Was Did you look around and think, well, there, there isn't anything really like this? I... Uh, First of all, I, it's also important that I, because I like it. So, uh, otherwise, I wouldn't do that. But uh, I've been working at First Nations University since 2007. And by the way, I started exactly on January 3rd, 2007. Uh, it's your anniversary. Because, yeah, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I, I, I had forgotten that you I just remembered now. Uh, yeah, the, we work with uh, First Nations communities and uh, I was involved in many community-based projects, and it was kind of the, the request from the communities that they, uh, the indigenous uh, First Nation schools they needed these type of uh, resources, uh, just uh, relating to uh, modern science. But another thing that again that was kind of my own idea. Uh, I I think about this type, uh, you know, the about the um, how science started and how we came to this modern science that we have today. Uh, it didn't happen in one day, right? So the, it started from some foundation. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I was thinking that the, uh, how to combine these two views. It's uh, from uh, other side, it's now... Uh, we talk about indigenization of uh, curriculum, school curriculums, and uh, uh, I think these resources can be useful not for uh, only First Nation schools. I, I, I'm sure it could be used by any schools, uh, by any mainstream schools too. Can you give us an example then of some of the things perhaps that you're using science to talk about? Like, for instance, I understand one of the topics is something like the the efficiency of dog sleds and how science plays into that. Yeah, that's exactly that's a very good question. Uh, thank you for reviewing that. Uh, we in school we teach about friction, and we start right from the Newton's law uh, and from uh, f- forces. What's the force? What's the friction? Kinetic friction, static friction, kin- uh, coefficient of friction. Uh, but we're kind of missing uh, how, let's say, thousands of years ago, people uh, were thinking about that, how they were working with friction. And uh, uh, we interviewed the knowledge uh, keepers, and they told us that even now in uh, indigenous communities, people use the dog sleds. And by the way, there are even competitions uh, in North Saskatchewan dog sled competitions, um, people from many countries participate in that. Uh, how they reduce, because if you want your dog sled moves faster, you have to reduce the friction. And they use the different materials. They, thousand years ago, they noticed which materials reduces the friction. And uh, even they use the, the uh, frozen fish because uh, fish uh, uh, skin is, is very, uh, it has a very uh, small uh, friction uh, coefficient. Uh, so I think it's more interesting for students uh, first to see, to think about how people started uh, learning about uh, friction 
And then as a result, we say that, you know, that today uh, we can measure that coefficient of friction. Today we understand Mm. why this material or that material can reduce the friction. So we kind of, we want to show the whole uh, evolution uh, of the science from knowledge to modern science. That's so interesting because what you're doing then is you're just, you're really engaging people on a level of things that perhaps interest them, things that they can really get involved in. Yes. A, a, a good thing, again, is that the even if you don't have any physics uh, background, uh, you start, you can start thinking. And I think it's very important for schools. That's my kind of uh, uh, main principle when I teach. Uh, first, uh, learning starts from uh, being engaged. If, if, if you're attracted by that idea, then you will start learning. The learning is kind of the second stage of this process. And uh, I, I think uh, this type of, uh, these type of projects could motivate students, specifically indigenous students, because um, the students living in uh, indigenous community they see those uh, dog sleds. Uh, you don't have to explain them how dog sled works. So, uh, but uh, if, again, if you start from the end, from the friction, coefficient of friction, it starts to get a little bit boring. But if you start from the dog, from dog sled, which they see every day, mm-hmm. and then you start going further, uh, it would be more attractive for students. I love this. It's so fascinating. Thank you so much for your time and describing it to us this morning. Thank you very much for having me. That is Dr. Arzu Sardarli, who's the lead project researcher and professor of mathematics and physics at the First Nations University of Canada. It's a whole new science teaching course that they have developed there where they're bringing together indigenous knowledge and modern science to engage students. It is absolutely fascinating. This is Mornings with Simi. Mediterranean diet. Oh, yeah, that was a popular one in 2022. How about the flexitarian diet? That's another good one there. Or the DASH diet. Those are the three biggest diets that people checked out in 2022. And I'm sure there's going to be three whole new ones for 2023. Our Raji Sohal is with us now. I think people want to eat better. Yeah, a poll showed that of the Canadians who made New Year's resolutions, almost 30% of those New Year's resolutions were health-related. And I don't know if you're up there with that list of, I guess you've got some health-related New Year's resolutions, kind of Um, resolutions. Yeah, I wouldn't say there's any particular diet. Okay. Yeah, but we definitely, there's some things that we want to incorporate more. I mean, I just look at it as a reset because I think the holidays is just a time for excess and cookies and cakes, like anything sweet. And January comes and I think, you know what? I just want to put all that aside. So I wouldn't say it's a New Year's resolution or a diet or anything. I'm just trying to put all that behind trying to be me healthier. for a little while. Yes. You know, I was thinking of some of the, the various diets that we have been through and like there are a lot of them. I'm, I was remembering the one called Atkins that people were obsessed with. Um, the one that Rob Lowe still advertises. Yeah. <laughs> Does he? Yes. <laughs> I didn't know that. But that obsession with protein, I kind of came up during the, the fat-free craze of the 90s. I and I that. remember eating, religiously eating these processed uh, snacks like uh, fake chips and, and fake cookies that they tasted like cardboard. I'm certain. But they're supposed to be fat-free, therefore you can eat them. Exactly. Right? And I would eat an entire box. Um, those were awful. And then a lot of folks are on keto these days. 
And oh, I know a lot popular. of people are doing the juice cleanses. You remember when Beyonce lost 20 pounds on the master cleanse? This is the one where you drink just water with a little bit of cayenne powder and lemon I don't juice. <laughs> also, you know, I know that people love their apps these days too to help them. Uh, I love the ads for Noom. Oh, I don't yes. know why, but they entertain me so much <laughs> because I guess, do you want an app to tell you what your deepest, darkest psychological food issues are? <laughs> I don't personally. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, something happened for me increasingly over, I want to say the holidays, but it was really over the course of December where my meals became more and more dominated by starches and proteins. And I'd be like, oh, mashed potatoes, that's a vegetable. Give me a whole heaping it, pile of it. It is a vegetable. <laughs> yeah. You can count that. Um, and I also got uh, my plates crowded by uh, vitamin sugar, and vitamin chocolate for all my snacks. But I talked to a nutritionist here in BC and she said, you know what, forget the diet. Even if it's part of your New Year's resolution to eat better, just forget about diets. She said, instead of getting rid of like certain food items and avoiding those food items, like the plague, she said, what you should do instead is think about what you can add to your plate. And she said, the biggest impact is if you can add fermented foods, which are hugely beneficial for your gut health, which we're hearing a lot about these days too. And she said, load it up with veggies. The nutritionist is Jordan Bruce, and she's a registered nutritionist in Squamish here in BC. And she had this to say. As a lot of people do start dieting at this time of year, and it's just so important to not live a restrictive lifestyle and overly focus on weight. Just because someone is thin does not mean they are healthy. So ditch the diet and instead try and make it a lifestyle. So it's not something that is short-term. There's no short-term goals. This is long-term. It's sustainable. It's not stressful. It's enjoyable. <laughs> You're eating food you like. And by just increasing more fiber, like vegetables and grains in your diet, most of Canadians are not hitting their fiber targets. 25 grams for women, 38 grams for men, very conservative goal. And the majority of people are focusing on protein and that leaves us just a little bit fiber deficient. So I kind of, my goal for everyone would be to try and balance your plate by having half vegetables, maybe a quarter of your plate starch, a quarter of your plate protein, and then make sure you add those healthy fats. But any plant is going to be very beneficial. And the other way you can get more fiber is by eating beans. Legumes and lentils are very high in fiber. And that is really good for our gut microbiota, especially because they're a prebiotic. And a prebiotic is food for our good bacteria. So if you don't tolerate beans well, just start very slow by adding in a tablespoon per day, for example. But they're affordable for most people and our gut health directly impacts our physical as well as our mental health. I do love a vegetable-based cold-pressed juice here and there, but I would never include a juice as a meal because there's no protein, no fiber, and no fat. So technically, it's not a complete balanced meal. Okay, that's good to know. Also, do you remember the cabbage soup diet? No, pray tell. What? Cabbage, that sounds terrible. Have you never heard of the cabbage soup diet? No, please tell me it doesn't consist of having a cabbage oh. soup every day. 
Yeah, that's, oh, there's like gross. a special cabbage soup recipe that you <laughs> no. make and then that's what you eat. No, that's a very long time. I would say well-known kind of fad uh, diet. That did you try it? I've tr- oh, probably like 25 years ago. Maybe I tried that. Uh, there's the carnivore diet, you know, that where yeah. you're just like eating nothing but meat. Uh, there's so many different ways to approach this, right? It's like, there's lots of just so much information out there. It can feel a bit overwhelming, I think. I feel like it's, uh, you know, the only thing I've ever been is vegetarian, which I was for 15 years, a very long time. I was almost vegan. Um, But you know what? I really missed meat and admitting that to myself and now eating, now I eat everything and uh, I feel great. I feel better than if I'm depriving myself of anything. But, you know, with this call for us to all add more vegetables and to make our plates as colorful as possible, it makes me think also about the price of produce because everything's gone up. And, you know, my brother told me the other day he spent $10 on a head of romaine lettuce. I'm sorry. Oh, so your brother is the one. (laughs) Because <laughs> I was wondering who's going to who buy it. Buying him, lettuce. although his wife was like, "What are you doing?" When it's that expensive and out of season, like y- you could, gr- this is no point you in could, eating lettuce right you now. You could grow it yourself. You could get probably organic and frozen at that price of some other kind of leaf, like spinach. But um, I've been, I'm trying to squeeze in as much as I can. That's from the frozen section, from the frozen aisle, because of how expensive it all is. But you know, you still want to, you need to eat healthy. Still, you got to find a way to squeeze it in. One of the most, not just popular, but also the best diets for your health is called the DASH diet. And this is great for people who have high blood pressure. So let me ask you a question. Do you know how many servings of grains you are supposed to have a day? Supposed to? Yes. So one serving is one slice of bread or half a cup of like rice or pasta. So that's, that would be one serving. So do you know how many my, servings you're supposed okay, to Okay. My guess, you're really putting me on the spot, but my guess is two, <laughs> two servings a day. No, no. Six to eight. Holy. See, this is the thing. Like we don't, I don't think we fully understand what the best servings are for vegetables. Half a cup of cut up or cooked raw vegetables. So half a cup is considered one serving. That's it. That's not very much. And you're supposed to have four to five of those a day, along with four to five, the same of fruit. I mean, that's, that's actually a and lot of food. And how much chocolate are you supposed to have a day? Oh, let me see if I can find it on this list. <laughs> um, oh, let's see. Oh, here, I've got it for you. Sweets and added sugars. This is like on the DASH diet. Okay. Five servings or fewer a week. A week. One Ugh. serving. Oh, one serving is like one tablespoon of sugar. Oh, yeah. goodness None me. of us are going by this. No. None of us are going by this. No, I made a cake that was so good on the weekend <laughs> that I was like, I need it. What's the next occasion? Who needs a cake? Whose birthday's coming so up? Good, I need right? to make this cake again as soon as possible. What you should have done is bring it into work because uh, that's what I do. I love to bake, but I'm not leaving that stuff sitting around at home. No. And I bring it into work and leave it on the kitchen counter and Someone it's gone in 30 seconds. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so is there any New Year's like things that you want to do in terms of your diet, your nutrition? No, I, but I have found that I have just because in the spirit of gratitude that we all tend to feel more towards the end of the year and the beginning of the year, I have been more just mindful while I'm eating. Like as I'm eating it, I'm going, this is delicious. I appreciate this. That's a good way to look at it. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Sohal there talking about nutrition goals for 2023. This is Mornings with Simi. We hear there's a labor shortage here in BC, right? All sorts of businesses, especially in the service industry, that need workers. 
So why is an employment agency saying that it's having trouble finding enough businesses willing to hire persons with disabilities? They're more than capable and reliable. What is going on? Well, joining us now is Tadiwa Nemutambwe, who's a team lead at CBI Consultants. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me, Simi. And what kind of work does CBI Consultants do? Uh, well, CBI Consultants um, has kind of two factions. Um, one is we have wonderful uh, behavior consultants um, supporting folks all across um, BC. And then I work um, in the employment, uh, self-determination and customized employment program um, where we support uh, folks with disabilities to find and maintain employment. And what's that work been like recently? Are you able to help people find employment? The work has been um, very good uh, recently. Um, However, finding work for people, um, folks with disabilities, has always been a challenge, um, even more so after COVID. Um, And yeah, like you're saying, with the BC um, uh, labor shortage, um, it's interesting that we're we're not really getting as many employers on board um, with inclusive hiring, but that's what we're here for. Yeah, put the word out there. So what kind of jobs are we talking about here? Well, folks with disabilities um, work in a variety of sectors. Um, You name it, (laughs) folks with disabilities um, are there. And, uh, you know, they have a passion for what they do. And uh, we have folks, you know, working, um, you know, in the service industry, in restaurants, um, grocery stores, um, as well as, you know, at at banks, banks. at universities, um, all over. Okay, and what what kind of message would you like to give to businesses on this one? Yeah, uh, folks with disabilities um, are wonderful employees and have the highest retention rates uh, among folks, about 90, it's in the 90th percentile um, with retention. Um, they're passionate about what they do, uh, work very hard. Um, the folks we support, all of them who are employed right now, um, have been at their place of employment for a long time now and are really, really passionate about what they do. So inclusive hiring, it's a wonderful thing. Um, we're here to provide information on it. Um, and it really just takes an employer who, who says, this makes sense. Let's do this. Um, and is on board with inclusive hiring for it to work. What do you think are some of the challenges there to do? Well, like, what are businesses concerned about? Like, why don't they make this leap sooner? Mm-hmm. What I hear um, from businesses sometimes is um, that they don't have um, enough time for training or they're worried about safety concerns. And what I say to that is, um, especially with CBI consultants, we uh, our employment specialists actually um, – are, su- are supportive in training um, when, in, when a per- person starts working. So um, once they start their job, we are there for job coaching and um, take on components of that training um, to support, you know, any extra time that a person may need for training. And we find that they actually don't need any more training than anyone else uh, most of the time, um, especially when we're present. And... Um, they're able. They're able to to, to work. Right. That must be that must um, be yeah. frustrating for you though too at CBI Consultants, where a lot of probably what you hear from businesses, you feel like okay, well that's unfounded. If you just gave this a chance, you'd find that that's not the case. A hundred percent. It's really the barrier is just getting a foot in. Um, it's just getting um, someone who says let's let's 
give this a shot. Um, let's see what they can do. Um, and yeah, just like with any uh, employment candidate, you give them a probationary period in, in some instances and see how they do and make a decision from there. So that's all we ask. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's all we're asking. Give it a shot. Yeah. And you would think yeah. that right now is a time to think a little bit differently for some businesses. Of course, right? Right now is a time um, that businesses are considering, you know, their uh, EDI approaches. Um, and, you know, folks with disabilities are right in there. Um, and, again, I cannot stress enough how, how amazing each person we support who walks through our doors is. Um, they are so passionate about what they do. They are willing to learn um, and willing to improve and just do the most amazing job once they you know, get an opportunity. And so what areas do you work in? Like what, where is there Metro Vancouver? Like how, how, how widespread is this? So our employment program uh, covers the lower mainland. Um, so we have folks working in Vancouver, North Vancouver, um, Surrey, um, you know, the Tri-Cities. Um, we're pretty wide, widespread, uh, among our employment specialists. And, um, yeah, you know, we, we obviously um, get most of our contracts from Community Living BC, um, but we we serve a lot of the Lower Mainland, for sure. You must be, you must have seen some amazing transformations over time of, of clients who come to you, you can place them in a job, and what does that do for them with they, when they are able to have, like, a steady, reliable job? Oh, from what I've seen, you know, uh, firsthand, uh, when, you know, I worked with someone who was looking for a job for about a year or two, and um, we just kept pushing every week, um, you know, training them with um, employment-related skills and how to even be independent with applying for and interviewing on their own. And seeing um, folks, you know, get those skills, be confident in those skills, uh, get a job introduced, do so well in that, and then get the chance to start their first shift. It's that first shift um, where they're just, they come in with this energy and folks around them notice it um, all the time. And it lasts, it continues from that first shift onwards. Um, They just get so much more confident, they're able to save money for their goals, um, able to go home and say, I am doing something. They have purpose in their lives, and that's what we love to see. And what works better then? Is it the big companies who come to you or the smaller businesses? Well, a mix of both, to be honest. Um, we usually uh, are the ones reaching out to companies, um, and we've made uh, multiple connections with companies big and small. Um, we find that with small businesses, um, you know, we can pop in, say hello, have that kind of in-person touch with, with larger businesses. Of course, we kind of have to go through some channels, so it's a bit challenging there. Um, but with larger businesses, they are, uh, I would say, more willing to, to, to hire. There's more, you know, space, space for them to fill. Um but to be honest with you, at the end of the day, it really just comes down to who we talk to and their own um, understanding of inclusive hiring or their, um, you know, them wanting to learn more. And once we get that kind of feedback, we know that, okay, there's a relationship starting here and we can, we can build on that. Now, today, well, where can people get more information, especially business owners out there, if they think, you know what, yeah, I'd like to try this? For sure. Well, for us... Um, 
feel free to hop on over to cbiconsultants.com um, for more information about our employment programs. Um, you can uh, scroll through on the the main um, tabs there and look for uh, customized employment and read more about what we do. We will do that. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much for having me, Simi.